This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. Are you a passionate surgical educator with something to say? Then join Behind the Knife and let the world hear. Behind the Knife is the number one surgery podcast in the world, with each episode reaching 20,000 listeners. Our current group of subspecialty teams have created incredibly diverse and engaging content, but their commitments are nearly finished, and we want to open up the opportunity to all of our listeners. We're looking for teams of three to four surgeons who will develop one new subspecialty podcast every four months. To learn more, check out the show notes or contact us at hello at BehindTheKnife.org. Applications are due February 13th. Welcome back to Behind the Knife. This is Patrick Georgioff, and I am joined by Kevin Canary. And today we have two very special, very funny guests, the king and queen of medical comedy. I want to play a little teaser here. I think you might recognize this. Good morning, doctor. We have a new med student working with us today. Hi, I'm excited to be here. We're happy to have you. Please be nice. Of course I'll be nice. Don't let them scare you. I'm not like the other surgeons, all right? I'm really easygoing. What's the blood pressure doing? Okay, make it better, please. Can we check the blood pressure, please? The patient's moving. Why is the patient moving? Look, I only get paid to do my job. Don't expect me to do yours, too. Bed up. Bed down. Put the bed exactly where I want it, please. Reverse Trendelenburg. That's regular Trendelenburg. I need reverse Trendelenburg. Dr. Trendelenburg is rolling over in his grave right now. It's way too hot in here. Turn the temp down, please. It's not as low as it can go. Make it colder. Well, then call HVAC and tell them to make it colder. I'll tell you where the money went. Right into hospital administrators' pockets. Hey, where's the music? Let's get some music playing. Oh, turn it up. I love this song. Music's way too loud. I can't hear myself think. We are thrilled to welcome Dr. Will Flannery, a.k.a. Dr. Glockenfecken, and Kristen Flannery, a.k.a. Lady Glockenfecken, to the show. Will is a practicing ophthalmologist and social media personality with over 4 million followers. During his third year of medical school, he was diagnosed with testicular cancer, and he began using humor as a coping mechanism. Following a second bout with cancer three years into his medical career, he created a Twitter account under the pseudonym Dr. Glockenfecken. Because it is, according to him, arguably the funniest word in all of ophthalmology. A cardiac event and near-death experience in 2020 only fueled his creativity. Kristen, meanwhile, is formally trained in cognitive neuroscience and social psychology and now works in marketing and communications. Kristen is best known internationally as her social media alter ego, Lady Glockenfecken, where she shares stories from her unique perspective of the healthcare system. She has been a patient married to medicine through the entire medical training journey and beyond, and a lay responder and CPR provider to her husband. She's also a caregiver and co-survivor of his two cancer occurrences and sudden cardiac arrest. 
And if that's not enough, they have also a brand new podcast called Knock Knock High, where they discuss quirky and unexpectedly hilarious medical stories. All right. Welcome, Kristen and Will. We have a very important first question for you. Will. <laughs> All right. I'm excited. Ophthalmologist surgeons. Uh, I knew you were going to ask me this. <laughs> I I just I suspected it because I you know I was kind of surprised. Like you're going to bring an ophthalmologist on a on a on a surgical podcast because I know I know that you know there's a little bit of you know like oh, are they real surgeons? I'll tell you this. In in some respects, yes, we absolutely are real surgeons. Okay. Um, in the fact that. Uh, if you need someone to operate on your eyeball, all right, you want an ophthalmologist. I don't think you want anybody else. All right. But if we're talking about the like perioperative care that you expect in like a hospital where you're like managing like incisions and, and like doing a bunch of post-op checks and patients are admitted, then absolutely not. We are not real surgeons, but I think overall, I consider myself an ophthalmic surgeon. Yes. This is important <laughs> to know. Yeah. And I want you to know just the other day, <laughs> we had a, uh, we were in the trauma bay and uh, we're seeing some consults. And one of the residents very proudly pointed out that they had spotted the ophthalmologist walking towards the other bay and went <laughs> running after them uh, to hunt them down for one of our trauma surgeons because it involved the eyeball and everyone was at a complete loss. That's a rare, that's a rare yeah. sighting. We don't, we don't get into the hospital very often. So that's, that's good. You, you make a wish when that happens, by the way. <laughs> yeah. So um, here's a question for you. Yeah. Do you consider us surgeons? Oh, I'm like Kevin into that one. Oh, ask so, a vascular surgeon. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, many of my friends actually chose ophthalmology. Like my Titus group, my my fantasy football league from uh, med school is actually like three quarters ophthalmologists, and uh, they're all very happy with their life choices. Um, <laughs> but yeah, they, I think they can I, I, the draft. They can play all the day. They can keep yeah. tabs on their team. Meanwhile, yours is falling apart into tatters after you take your. You can you, know. you can consider ophthalmology whatever you want. I just I I have better work life balance than you, so it's it, it was all, vascular surgery it, actually that convinced him to go into ophthalmology. <laughs> yeah, and that's how, true. And how was that? Well, um, uh, so you know, I, I my core rotation as a third year med student was in vascular surgery. Uh, I was just assigned to do seven weeks of vascular. And um, I, I just, I liked, sir, I liked being in the operating room. I thought that was fun. But um, I, I'll be honest, I hated that rotation. It was, you know, like very sick patients, lots of blood, late nights, like, like the opposite of ophthalmology in every conceivable way. <laughs> and, um, and I just remember there was, this was like my last rotation of third year. I was standing in the corner of the operating room, like behind trash cans, because often that's where you end up as a med student. <laughs> but deposited uh, in the corner. Uh, yeah, deposited there. And I was wearing, you know, the 20 pounds of lead or however heavy those things are standing there, standing for hours, all right, motionless. And it's just like I was, you know, dying. I was sweating. And it's like, I'm not doing anything. Why, why am I here? And I is listening to the, the vascular surgery attending talk about their favorite brand of compression stockings 
<laughs> and uh, and just thinking there has to be a better way to do surgery. Like Kevin this has a whole collection of this. I know you do because you got horrible venous insufficiency. I know you after <laughs> how many, however many years you've been a surgeon. And then I immediately left vascular surgery and I started a two week elective in ophthalmology that I had planned. And my first day walking into the operating room, I was offered somewhere to sit. <laughs> The and that was it. Singing and they were raised, that, raised with sunshine. Exactly, and that that was teddy bears it. dancing off in the distance. And I was like, I'm "Sold! You're gonna, you're, and you're also gonna let me go home at a reasonable hour. Sign me up. I'll be an well, ophthalmologist." So honestly, that's really like a big part of actually how it was, was like there. the the that's difference between the two experiences that really sold me. Well, I'm so, glad Vascular could play such a large part in your career choice. Yeah, Do you think you, you. would? Would you have had the time for the comedy had you not gone into ophthalmology? Uh, fair point. No, pe- people ask me that, and and no, absolutely not. Like I, I would have done something. I probably would have had some kind of social media experience, but I, there's no way I could do all like the filming of this, all these skits and these videos and writing all the time it takes to make those. If I was in a, a another career in medicine, so it's, I think it's because I'm in the job I'm in and in the field I'm in that really allows me to explore that creative side. So, so in talking about your, your observations and from surgery and standing in the corner with heavy lead on you, you're obviously a huge part of your success is a just extraordinarily on point satire of the different specialties, just to the T. And so when you think about when you talk about writing and and creating these skits, when you Mm -hmm. think about surgeons, yeah. What do you what do you think about? What are some of the things that come to mind? I'm I'm thinking about specifically some of those vascular surgeons I worked with. Like that's my benchmark because that was my first like real surgical experience. And they were like old school vascular surgeons. They were in their like, you know, late fifties, sixties. And this was this was, you know, in uh in two thousand ten or something like that. So um and they were grumpy and kind of, you know, threw their weight around in the OR. And so all the things in the easygoing surgeon, like a lot, a lot of those are kind of jokes in the video I, I, I made about the easygoing surgeon. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, it's, it's not too far off, to be honest, <laughs> from a lot of those, uh, those interactions I had. And also in ophthalmology, I, we had a couple of, um, uh, they're going to get mad at me if I, if I, if they hear this, but, we had a couple of oculoplastics surgeons that were kind of on that spectrum as well for, for like, you know, kind of your classic typical surgeon. Sure. That's, that's how it goes. And so you're talking about ophthalmologists and whether or not we're real surgeons. Well, if you talk to an oculoplastic surgeons, they absolutely, they, they're not ophthalmologists. They are surgeons. That's, <laughs> so that's, that's where the, the difference starts right there is when you're talking to a, like an oculoplastic surgeon who does a thousand bluffs every day. So, 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 so Will, what, one question I had was, you know, how has COVID impacted this and, and how do healthcare providers respond to humor and, and kind of what role does humor play in the day-to-day lives of providers? So I, you know, COVID, I didn't start doing all these videos until uh, lockdown. So I was just on Twitter. I, <laughs> I, I had a following on Twitter but then our our practice shut down and someone had mentioned, hey, you should check out TikTok. I bet you could make some funny videos. And I checked it out and I started making videos and it just kind of kept going from there. Uh, and it was new and it was exciting. It was fun. And I think 
and it's just grown in popularity from there. Now you see a ton of people, a lot of people in medicine that are making really good content, really good video content. And it's in, it's important for physicians to explore their, their, that's that side of themselves, that all that humor, because it's, it's been there for a long time. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, that's how doctors and other people in healthcare who see some pretty horrible things and have to experience some really, you know, terrible things in medicine that that's, that's how we cope. Right. But most of the time it's like, you know, in, in physician workrooms or in the break rooms or locker rooms or whatever. And, and I think it should, we should be showing that side of ourselves like to the public safely. Like we got to do it in the right way. You know, and that there's rules that I follow whenever I'm on social media where, you know, not making fun of patients and, and just you got you got to be careful because as as physicians, we do have to maintain a level of professionalism on social media. But I still think we can and should show off our senses of humor and show the public, show people, hey, look, you know, we're just regular people. You know, we're we're all surgeons, we're doctors and and we have that side of ourselves. And, and I think it's helpful for people to see that, to know that we're not just like, you know, machines that, you know, can stand and do a surgery for 10 hours wearing our compression stockings. <laughs> so Kristen, you, I mean, you guys have had this mul really, I would say meteoric rise on social media. You guys have insane number of followers and, but social media is, is a double-edged sword really. And yeah. <laughs> I'm sure you have some, some horror stories uh, and some, some downside to it too, because it's not all sunshine and rainbows, is it? No, you have to have a thick skin going in um, to social media. And I think also just a, a really solid sense of yourself and what you're doing there and, and why this is the place to be to do what you are trying to accomplish. Um, but also I think just knowing that just, I don't know, the trolls, sometimes they can get in your head, but also they're just like, they're easy to write off as well, because you know, they're not there to actually contribute anything meaningful or, or get something meaningful out of your content. They're just generally hurt people hurting people, right? So, um, so that's, it's kind of easy not to take it too seriously as well. But yeah, you hear people say, all sorts of things about, you know, whatever you're saying and most of the time nothing to do with what you're saying, um, you know, especially noticing on this podcast where it's he and I together, um, a lot of people comment on things about me, but not so much him, right? Like I'm noticing some misogyny in the, yeah. in the comments. Um, and a lot of it has to do with either my looks or... Um, that I should talk less, right? There's a lot of like, let the doctor speak kind of attitude. I shouldn't say there's a lot. 99% yeah. of the comments are great and people are there for the right reasons and, and they're wonderful. Um, but you know, of the ones that, that are saying negative things, that's kind of the flavor. So that's unfortunate, but it also makes it that much easier to write off. Cause I just feel like, well, that's just, that's misogyny and I'm not, here for misogyny so it's 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 almost un, it's unavoidable you know and and i you know i've been doing putting videos out and getting feedback for uh, you know years now and and it's um 
you can, it's pretty easy to know what's constructive feedback that's actually going to help you and what's not. And how much of it's constructive? Well, no, I mean, because especially when we you know, are starting this new podcast or people Which have ideas. Yeah. yeah. For, um, uh, for people have ideas for me for videos or things that my characters like they'd like to see them doing like that kind of stuff is actually really helpful sometimes. And I actually, I do get ideas from, it's from basically free market me. research. Yeah, yeah, you know, we, we like to hear what that. they would like to hear and what, what they're enjoying and what they're not enjoying as much. And, yeah. uh, you know, it helps us make it better for everybody. So there is, I would say the vast majority Again, of people yeah, are it's, very it's respectful and, and lovely. And even when they're offering suggestions, they're doing it in very nice ways. But the ways. bad ones are pretty bad. So that's kind of a, the, a big, you know, you know. Yeah, but you just kind of know that going in and you yeah. you have a thick skin and you got to brush it off, you know. So you just I block them at that point? Yeah. What's that? We just block them quick, you know, quick to block. Oh, oh quick with the block button. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, removing comments, you know, especially ones that, you know, are are really just If it's just mean, then just mean. it doesn't belong, right? Yeah. Like if there's some constructive criticism, we're open to that, but if it's just an insult, there's no need for it to be there. Yeah. Social media is so bad that we don't even get a lot of comments or feedback or something <laughs> when it comes to it. So you guys you guys are, are, are masterful. Well, people have a lot of opinions about strong women who have things to say. So it's <laughs> true. And it's, yeah, it, it makes me angry when I see that. But then the other thing is, do you respond? And, and you know, because there's, there's that, uh, and Twitter's, uh, you know, this is, Twitter's a platform where you can really get sucked into some of these, you know, troll type comments. And what I've learned is when to respond, when it's worth it and when it's not. Because sometimes it is worth it to, hey, point, point out, hey, this is not the correct way of thinking or, or this is really hurtful. And, and, you know, but sometimes, and especially as our platform has grown, sometimes drawing attention to it just makes it worse. And you got to treat it kind of like a toddler, right? You pick your battles and is this important in the long run? Then I'll address it. Is this just a temper tantrum? Let it blow over. (laughs) Keep moving. So will something, uh, some people don't know about you is that you survived testicular cancer, not once, but twice. Um, yeah. Can you tell us how that changed your outlook on life and did that change your career trajectory? Um, it, uh, yeah, it made me realize, you know, like testicles aren't that important. <laughs> <laughs> like, I mean, let's be honest here. Like they're, I mean, you could do just fine without them. I mean, I, I you know, I'm, uh, you know, riding a bike has, is, has never been more comfortable. Like it's, <laughs> it's like, uh, seriously, you don't, you don't need them. I, they, they serve some, I mean, some important huh? purpose, but for the most part, you know, you can live a normal life without testicles. Okay. Um, but the experience of going through cancer as a young person did have a big impact on me. And, because it's it's a very isolating, lonely experience because that's not what you expect to be doing when you're you know twenty five twenty six and you're you know you're hanging out in waiting rooms for 
hours, you know, looking at people who are three times older than you. It's just right. like, yeah. And this all is, the brochures they hand you are for yeah, that like, age group. Yeah. Or, there's always know. people in their sixties, seventies, eighties on these, on these brochures and stuff and, and on the, all the pictures on the walls and everything. And so it's just like constant reminders that you're too young for this. Uh, and, and actually it was, it was my cancer experiences that really taught me the importance of comedy and because at, at that point in my life, when I was diagnosed, I had gone away from stand-up because I'd started doing stand-up comedy in high school and college and as a hobby, basically. But I was, I was getting pretty good. I was having just a little bit of success, nothing, nothing major. But then I got away from it when I started getting into my like, uh, um, clinical rotations. But then I had this cancer diagnosis and I was like, I, I felt that urge to like get back out there and start telling jokes again and, and, really just dealing with the, all the thoughts and the, the feelings that I was having surrounding that diagnosis. And it helps, you know, it really, and it's such an incredible coping mechanism. And that's why there's so many funny people in medicine and why it's, it really is something that we should all embrace because that's uh, using humor, both in my, you know, obviously in my, um, you know, content, but also just in my day-to-day life, you know, using it with yeah. patients. Now it's different with patients, but you know, it's all like dad jokey type of stuff, <laughs> you know, but still it's important. Tax day is coming. Oh no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boost by tax day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial, LLC, member SIPC. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. So, so Will, I have two follow-up questions that are maybe a little personal. You know, was it just you felt a mass on your testicle? Like, what, yeah. what was it? And then the other question is, is, I know you guys have kids. How did that play into this timeline and, and how did that work? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's very I, good at feeling his testicles. So. Yeah, yeah, you know it's it's. He had a lot of practice. With that. <laughs> I felt it myself. Yeah, I <laughs> I had to like convince myself that it was actually like a real. Yeah, it was, it's so easy when you find something like that in your body to like explain it away. Like, oh, that's probably the epididymis, or you know, and and so there was some of that for like probably a week, and then I had I was like you know, obsessively feeling this nodule on my testicles. Like, okay, this, I, this is definitely not right with the prospect of, of, you know, know, infertility. And so, um, it wasn't as difficult. It was still really difficult to have to decide, okay, do I bank sperm? Do I not, you know, uh, is, are we done? Is our family complete? And having all, and I did bank sperm for, um, a couple of years very expensive process. It's really also interesting what they do with your sperm after you like you, you after you give them 
like you literally hand the specimen cup like to this other person very strange all the do way they, around do they judge you when they look the at whole it? you know i i i don't think it was kind of like one of those i didn't want to look the person directly into the eye <laughs> as i handed them a cup of my own semen absolutely uh and so um i i, I can't i don't know exactly what they thought at the time but i was like oh they probably do this like you know 40 times a day i'm sure sure what an interesting job that would be anyway um and so it's uh what they do though is they have to they they like you can pay extra to have it be sent on different trucks oh no shit <laughs> yeah like to the to the storage facility because like if i don't know the truck driver has an accident and and there's you know sperm all over the highway uh <laughs> then at least you have some of it in a different truck and all of this is crazy expensive too so it's did you very... spring, for the, spring for the luxury <laughs> i did not no. i was like you know what no if, <laughs> if we lose this thing it's not that it, valuable it just wasn't meant to be <laughs> but, uh, so, so when yeah. when uh um when is can we expect the glockenfack in um sweepstakes for that that sperm that's that's hidden somewhere in the sperm bank. <laughs> oh no, it's the I think it's I it's think destroyed. it's destroyed now. Yeah. <laughs> Bec- so so we only I only st- sorry sorry ladies. <laughs> Man, that 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 would have been a, a great fundraising yeah, opportunity. Only we'd have the force. <laughs> Very strange. Um, but no, I it, it was like it was like maybe two years, and then eventually we were like, you know what, we're we're complete. Like it helped that good. by the time he had it the second time, I already was done the shop was closed yeah so he needed a little more time to kind of mentally process that and get there as well so i said if this will help let's do it and we have this as an insurance policy that's totally fine here's another cool another interesting thing is to get your sperm destroyed uh your sample destroyed you gotta uh, like go to fedex and have something um notarized by the fedex employee so i like i like went in and and was like brought a form is like I I need you to sign this for me. (laughs) So can you help? Can you help me destroy my sperm, please? (laughs) And they sent you to FedEx. FedEx FedEx worker. Well, because they have at these at these post office type places, they have they're like notaries there. Yeah. Okay. And so I just I needed a notary (laughs) to do this. So So I think this is a great time (laughs) uh, for a potentially a PSA will for. People yeah. like Kevin and myself and all of our male yeah. is how should we be handling our balls? You know what? It's funny because every time I post about like checking your own testicles on social media, there's always somebody out there who's like, you know, the USTSPF or whatever it is, the US Preventative Task Force. I don't, I don't remember what the acronym is, says that they're, it's like a, a um, class B recommendation that uh, it actually doesn't help whenever you do your own testicular exam. Like basically trying to make the argument that there's no evidence to suggest that doing a self exam. And my, my reaction to that is like these we're talking about like young men, like they're touching they're their balls anyway. all the time. Like are they you, may as well just like what are you talking out. about? Telling guys not to like examine their testicles. We know our <laughs> testicles better than anything else in the world. <laughs> and so, um, and so I, I, I th- it's like, go for it. Absolutely. You should be, you should be very familiar with your balls. You make me so proud. You know that. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. well, I don't care. <laughs> I don't care what anybody says. Be familiar with your balls. So while, uh, so while Will was feeling his balls, Kristen, you have even a, uh, greater claim to fame. 
in that uh, you saved uh, Will's life, uh, mm-hmm. literally saved his life. And mm-hmm. I think a lot of people have heard about this if they follow you on social media, but could you take just a, a moment to tell everyone what happened and what was going through your mind during the event? And then since then, what have you, uh, you've spoken about this and you've, you've, you've mm-hmm. done educational material and, and all of that. So yeah, please tell us. Yeah. Um, so I don't know, three or four years after the second round of cancer, um, he had a cardiac arrest in his sleep. It was May of 2020, um, the night after mother's day, cause he has real cool timing like that. And <laughs> he was perfectly healthy. I mean, aside from the two cancer occurrences, but he was, as far as we knew, very healthy and still young. He was 34. Um, and he just, in, in his sleep, his heart stopped beating. And I am not medically trained or inclined in any way. Um, and so being when it was May of 2020, early in the COVID pandemic, I, you know, I heard what I later learned was agonal breathing, but I had no idea what that was. And I just heard him making these really weird snoring sounds. Um, and I was just, it was like 445 in the morning. So I was real groggy, right? Just like startled awake by these noises. And I thought he was just snoring and, you know, but eventually it, it, I realized that he wasn't responding. And so I called 911 and I was thinking COVID, you know, because it was this respiratory thing that I was hearing and just there's no history of any sort of, you know, sudden cardiac arrest in his family or anything like that. So it just did not cross my mind. And I did not know what was going on. So the dispatcher knew what to do. And she told me to start CPR. And I was like, um, okay. And just did what she said. So I did 10 minutes of CPR. I couldn't move him off the bed. I like less than a, I mean, uh, more than a foot shorter than him. Yeah. Yeah. And I had had a cervical disc replacement just like three or four months before that. So (laughs) I, and I'm hypermobile. So, you know, just the combination was great. Uh, but I couldn't, I just couldn't move him off the bed. I was worried about hitting his, his head on the nightstand. If I tried to drag him and, um, if I hurt myself, then I couldn't help him at all. So, um, she told me just to do it on the bed. So I did. Um, and thankfully it all worked out, but, um, paramedics came, kicked the door in, did all the things. They shocked him five times and gave him a bunch of other stuff and took him off to the, to the hospital. So, um, and now she, you know, we talk about this when we, we, you know, when we do speaking events and, um, it's really powerful to hear Kristen's account of it and uh, and the advocacy that we've done together and she's done on her own, you know, for not only survivors or CPR, but also people who the people that do the CPR, because that's right. often um, yeah, all the attention in the cardiac arrest space um, around advocacy. It tends to go towards teaching people CPR. And that is absolutely very important. And let's do that work. And I, I try to contribute to that work as well. Um, but we're now in a, in a situation where there just didn't used to be survivors of cardiac arrest. And so, you know, the attention was all on, well, let's try to get more survivors. And the good news is we, we have, there are more now than there used to be. And yeah. And, um, but what that does is it opens up this, 
this kind of second step in the process, which is, you know, there are people along with the patient, right? Like this is a whole step of survivorship. And the patient has a lot of things that um, they don't get any support for right now with regards to survivorship, but also the family members, right? It happened to them too. And they definitely have no support right now within the healthcare system. Um, And then even if you're not a family member, if you're just a witness or if you are a lay responder, um, whether it's someone you know or not, if you're not medically trained, um, this is very traumatic. Like the things that you see and hear and feel and do when you're doing CPR, it is gnarly and it's brutal. And, um, you know, add to that, that it statistically speaking anyway, it's likely to be a loved one, right? So you're doing all of these things on someone that you, you love. I mean, it's just very traumatic and it, it did, it sent me into, um, a, a very weird space in my head that took me a while um, to find my way out of. Um, but yeah, just in the moment, you know, I was just thinking of us as uh, college kids, you know, when we met and, and started dating and, and everything, you know, that we've been through from then until now and just all the hard work we've put into building a life together. And now here it's finally like we're settled and we have kids and we're, we're doing it right. We finally get to do it. She was thinking um, about the mortgage I almost left it with. <laughs> we had just gotten a mortgage one month yeah. before. Uh, and I tried to check out. Yeah. And so. I was like, no way. You're not leaving me here with two young kids to raise and this mortgage. Like, you're just not allowed. So, so get back here. Um, yeah. But yeah, you, you know, you kind of your life flashes before your eyes, so to speak. But it wasn't it wasn't my life necessarily but it was our life yeah Yeah, it was my kids and our marriage and just all of the things and and so i was working as hard as i could (laughs) incredible so so i have two follow-up questions to that um had you ever done cpr learned cpr done bls anything like that and the other question is is what was his status when he left the house was was Mm -hmm. there signs of life um where do you think he was going off the hospital to die like where where you know what was that situation yeah um, I had never done CPR before. I had had one training. Um, I in college, I'd had a an after school job that dealt with childcare, and so I had to get um, CPR certified for that. And I, I would imagine there was other BLS training along with that, but I don't really remember. Um, thankfully, it's not very complicated, right? I didn't realize I needed to do it. That was the problem. So I was really glad that the dispatcher did realize that. Um, but once you're doing it, it's it's not that, I mean, it's physically difficult, like in terms of it's very tiring, but it's not like a physically complicated maneuver or anything. So, um, so luckily it was something simple enough for, for anybody to do, um, as long as they're physically capable. But, um, then for me, uh, whenever they took when me, you left, you were not conscious, but they did get his heartbeat back in the house before they took him. <clears throat> and they were he, able to intubate me and start an IV and all that stuff. Yeah. Do you want to tell the story? No, those are the thing I know. I mean, just trying to be helpful. <laughs> <laughs> he was unconscious. What does he know? Uh, no, they got his heartbeat back and they, they took him off. Um, he was kind of batting at things, you know, kind of showing some signs of purposeful movement, but wasn't conscious at all. 
Um, but yeah, he was, he was kind of pulling at his tubes and, and things like that. I didn't get to see, right. It was COVID. So I didn't get to go with him. Um, yeah. Yeah. And that was another super traumatic thing that I think so many people in the country right now in the world are dealing with of, of being separated from their loved one in these really, really traumatic life and death situations. Um, but yeah, he was showing signs of life and, and health. And then they did all the tests and he was totally healthy and they couldn't figure out why it had happened. Everything was structurally and, and functionally as normal as you would expect. So, um, yeah. Is it thought to be related to the chemo? No, he never had to have chemo. chemo. Oh yeah. So, uh, yeah, we don't know. We don't know. It's not COVID vaccine related. I do. I have a subcutaneous ICD, um, which I got put. I, I, I normally, I think what happens is if this happens to a young person during the hospitalization, they'll just do the surgery. They'll just Mm -hmm. implant the ICD and at that during that hospitalization, but that couldn't happen for me because all the outpatient surgery got shut down because of COVID. And so, I actually had to wear the life vest. You guys have seen the life vest, like the mm-hmm. external defibrillator, the bra thing, the electric bra. Yeah. So I got to wear that for a few days. I don't know how long it was, but like a it week. Was a, it was two or three weeks. Yeah, yeah. So for a while and too long, I had to wear that thing until I was able to get a surgery to get the ICD placed. But yeah, and it hasn't gone off. Knock on wood. But yeah. yeah. Now, when you have an experience like this for I mean, both of you, I, you know, this has to change your, your outlook to some degree. And, mm-hmm. and maybe you want to talk about that. But also what I wonder is, do you ever feel guilty if you're getting back to normal and you'd be like, no, I have to remind myself that this is precious time that I'm alive. Like, how does it change over time as well? Because at first yeah. I'm sure you're just thrilled to be alive. Yeah, th- there was, that was the feeling right away. Uh, and that lasts for a while. And where you're just like every day, like, oh, thank God I'm here. I'm, I'm experiencing this with my family and my kids. And, but that, that feeling does fade um, because you just end up into your new normal, but some, but, but there's a lot of it that does still last quite a while. And it's stuff that you wouldn't expect, like, you know, not feeling comfortable going for a walk or a jog in places where I can't see where there's nobody around me, you know, like feeling scared at times of like, you know, if, if it happened again and I collapsed, no one would see me or nowhere, you know, Kristen obsessively making sure that I have my phone with me anywhere I go. Sure. So there's, there's little things like that, that, uh, uh, or just today, like I was downstairs oh my on my gosh. lunch break and <laughs> Kristen came home and there was an ambulance on our street and the paramedic oh. fire truck and the ambulance wow. lights were flashing and it was parked right outside of our house. So she, she called me is like freaking out. Like, you know, are you okay? So, you know, yeah, initially there's that relief uh, for a little while, but then the long-term effects we're still feeling. And a lot of it's little reminders like that. And, um, you know, just still processing the fact that, you know, this could happen again. You know, I, I don't know. Yeah. I just, you have to live with it, I guess. <laughs> yeah. You don't, you don't really move on from it. You yeah. move forward with it. I don't think about it every day. The fact that I had a cardiac arrest. Um, sometimes I'll 
I'll just, I'll have moments or I'll have periods of time where I think about it a lot, but those it's getting less and less, I would say. That's interesting. Now you guys have utilized your time doing some amazing things. And one of those is your new podcast, knock, knock high. I've had the opportunity to listen to a handful of your first, I think you guys have seven. Yeah. Six, episodes seven, seven, yeah. It's awesome. Uh, I've heard talk of, uh, vagina tears. We went uh, <laughs> you breaking bad news and, and, and some really actual uh, yeah. poignant kind of uh, thoughts and recommendations on that severed fingers, challenges in rural medicine, untimely births. And you guys are, you're all over the place. So tell us about the new yeah. podcast. Yeah. So uh, it's called knock, knock high with the Glock and Fleckens, which is a play on uh, some videos I used to make where a med student starts a rotation for the first yeah. time and introduces themselves. Um, Say so, and, and basically it's a, uh, what we wanted to do with this podcast was uh, show what we talked about earlier, which is that human side of, of doctors and other people in medicine and around medicine uh, to, to talk about some of the more off the wall, crazy, interesting, embarrassing things that happen to us in our daily lives. Cause you guys get used to it. But like from my outside perspective, I'm always like, you know, this is not normal, yeah. right? Like this is, this is weird. And with the <laughs> idea being that we we just show kind of that human side of being a physician, and um, and also I try to bring our take our guests a little bit out of their comfort zone from time to time. So, but that's the idea, and we all we have a new guest every day, every uh, episode, and uh, yeah, we hear crazy yeah. medical stories, things that that they have had to deal with on um, their side of the medical interactions, and then play games and and have some fun too, lots of laughs. But some serious things. I mean, we kind of go in and out, right? Of just and we we only in medicine. Like there's there's positive and negatives, and so we're not afraid to to do both. And we 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 uh, only we only do a journal club like one every once every like four episodes. (laughs) (laughs) So I have two questions as someone that is uh, very dedicated to my podcast schedule and listening. uh, How often do these come out, and what day do these come out? Once a week. Uh, It's a weekly podcast, and it comes out on Tuesdays. On YouTube and Apple, yeah, pretty, pretty cool. much everywhere, everywhere you, wherever you get your podcast, you can find it. Or there's a Patreon where you get early access. Yeah. Then so. they come out on Thursdays if you're on the part of the Patreon. If you're just dying to hear more yeah. of me <laughs> and Kristen. So, well, yeah. uh, everyone should definitely take a listen and congratulations on uh, already the early success with that. And it was a, a pleasure having you guys on Behind the Knife. And if you ever want to come back again, please do so. And please, uh, continue making this amazing content. We all enjoy it. Thanks. Thanks, Thanks for having so much. us. Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. 
LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. 